welcome to another exciting episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette. I'm your co-host, Bridget Keys, And I'm TJ West. And we are talking today about Season 3, Episode 15, Bottom Line for Murder. Thomas, give us the summary. All right. So in a very few words, uh, Jessica, as always, is visiting a friend who works at a TV station. One of the guys who works at the station is a real butthole, <laughs> kind of a tyrant. He ends up shot. Jessica's friend is arrested. She has to figure out who did it. And it turns out that it was an accident. And it was actually his best friend who shot him thinking it was the other guy. So that's the plot. Okay, that's a slightly confusing summary to get us started, but it's sufficient. I mean, it's a slightly confusing episode, actually. Oh, did you find it confusing? <laughs> Not as much as the one we're going to talk about after this one, <laughs> but yes. Um, I think it's just, for me, it's a pretty forgettable episode. Like, so bot- the, bo- the title comes from the show The Bottom Line, which is what our victim, Kenneth Chambers, produces. He's like the host of the show where they expose scandals about products and services, right? So the opening is him showing that this police bulletproof vest um, doesn't actually work, but actually it does. And there's another plot thread about how these teddy bears are supposed to be really dangerous because kids can rip the arms off and then get cut with wires. But actually the person who tries to rip the arm off can't even do it and she's an adult. So it's just like a scuzzy expose show. And I remember that. That I always remember. But like the intricacies of who murders whom and why – Pretty forgettable to me. Right. I was. I thought you were going to say that you remember those kinds of shows from the 80s, like the, you know, the exposés, <laughs> yes. which were very much a part of like 80s TV culture that I, you know, even though I'm a little bit younger than you, I still remember those kinds of, you know, product exposés. Yes. You know, the, the, the child endangerment <laughs> that's always sort of ubiquitous. But it's also, I mean, if, if, even if the episode itself is forgettable, I think it does raise some interesting issues about, like, the reliability of television as a medium. Absolutely. Since, uh, there's all the questions about, like, you know, it, like the things that they're trying to show don't come in for the shot, like, when they're ready to, like, shoot the one that will be shown. So it's, like, this an interesting engagement with, you know, what's being seen and what's actually happening. So... What you're referring to is that uh, in that opening sequence, Kenneth gets really angry when the bulletproof vest doesn't have bullet holes because he says he tried it 10 times before. And now that they're recording it, it's actually holding up and that's infuriating. And we also see uh, later the police lieutenant who works as a sort of consultant on the show is talking about how this this vest really is great and everything. And so Kenneth is like, I had the producers edit it. And then he shows a second the clip a second time, and it's um, like it sounds like the police guy is saying, "I wouldn't even let my dog wear this." And so, I for me, TJ, it made me think like as with a lot of murder she wrote episodes that are sort of meta about media, it's calling attention to the way that like media has lost its objectivity and its reliability. Like it's, you can't trust it. Uh, and it also feels, again, as Murder, She Wrote often does, like there's like eerie parallels to our time and the deep fake AI debates that we're having right now. Mm-hmm. That was exactly what occurred to me. I was like, wow, this is startling, the extent to which these debates about the, you know, as you say, the objectivity, the seemingly, like, natural relationship between visual media and the truth, or, like, what reality is, yeah. is coming increasingly under stress. You know, certainly in the 80s, where postmodernism as a academic term is really catching on. And yeah, and improvements really in video editing technologies, too. Like, mm-hmm. just the whole idea that you could interview someone and then chop up what they say and make it sound like they're saying something else entirely, which is anathema to the ethics of journalism, right? But it's totally something that makes sense to garner ratings on a sensational TV show. 
And isn't that essentially what a deep fake is, right? You're not chopping up that person anymore. You're just like adding things that didn't exist, either their face or their voice or something. But it's kind of the same premise, right? Like we, we've lost that sense that I can rely on what I see. What I see and hear must be real because I'm seeing and hearing it. And I mean, it's also, as Murashiro has done so often before, like calling attention to the mediascape in which it is itself located. Like, you know, it's one of those shows that's very self-aware of mm-hmm. what's going on in the world of like entertainment, the blurring of the boundary between news and journalism and entertainment. Like those lines are increasingly becoming fuzzy. And I like that Murder, She Wrote seems really so engaged with that question and comes back to it so often. You know, I think that is all this stuff about media and whether media is reliable and trustworthy and the way that the show is calling attention to media is Part of the delight for me as a viewer in an otherwise forgettable episode, um, much as we saw with, you know, the Johnny Shannon one or the um, all the other ones where there's like rich guys who have surveillance in their house. There seem to be a lot of those. Like that's always part of the fun for me um, is like the show thinking about media critically. But I think the mm-hmm. other – look, we're pretty candid about the fact that we're two queer folks hosting this show. So can we just also dive into – the second thing that does hook me into this episode, and then we'll get to the the third is the best, and you can guess what the third is going to be, knowing me. But we'll we'll go to the second one, which is that Adrienne Barbo is in this episode. We haven't seen her since the prison episode, Jessica Behind Bars. So I'm I'm really glad that she was released from prison and has gotten her life on track. She's now a TV producer. Um, She's not actually the same character, you guys. Um, But after Kenneth dies, she wants to prop up Claire, who was his beautiful blonde assistant, to be the new host. TJ is making so many faces right now. There's uh, this whole this the sequence with them two together is one of the best moments in Murder She Wrote. Wow, you really feel that way? It's part Svengali. It's part. It's part. You know, just sort of lesbian drama. It's perfect because, of course, as you say, like she's trying to set this person up to be a replacement. And there's a moment when they're sitting in front of the mirror and she says something to the effect of, I'm going to make you a star. I'm going to make you a star. And she's standing behind her. And Adrian Barbo is, of course, dark haired and she has this deep voice and she's always wearing pants in this episode. And Claire is soft and feminine and blonde and more vulnerable and you know and so it's such a butch femme dichotomy and tj and i were texting each other as we were watching and i'm like you know there's a thing in queer media studies where we talk about the ways that you can read queerness into things when it's not explicitly written and kids today call it queer coding we call it queer reading because it's not it's more about the audience member doing the act of interpretation and I was texting TJ and I was like, this isn't even queer reading. Like, this is the most lesbian thing I've ever seen on Murder, She Wrote. More lesbian than the prison episode, even. Right, which is saying a lot. But it was just, I, I was like, wow, this is sort of like, I, that's what it was. It's basically if Svengali met, like, A Star is Born. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. And then made them lesbians. <laughs> <laughs> and I think at one point, there's a, a kind of glimmer that perhaps Adrian Barbo's Adrian Barbo's character might have been the murderer because in Kenneth's absence she got to rise and turn the show into what she actually wanted it to be and she has no one standing in her way now as producer mm-hmm. and i just thought to myself oh she's going to be the killer isn't she and i don't want that because i really really don't want this person who is so cl- this character who's so clearly reading as queer to be a villain right that's a trope in film and media and we i just don't want my beloved murder she wrote to be doing it and guess what? 
She's she not. wasn't the murderer. Nope. <laughs> She's going to stay a lady in power. And um, I want to talk about one thing that does happen between her and Jessica before we move on to Well, I actually have one thing, too. The outfit that in, that they end up dressing the, the blonde woman in is truly one of the most outlandish, outlandish outfits I've ever seen in a Murder, She Wrote episode. It looked like she was less like she was hosting a talk show of this sort than she was going to be at a rodeo. <laughs> She was like a rodeo showgirl. It was like, because we see the costumier bring it over to um, Adrian Barbo's character who says like, make the neckline plunge all the way down to the navel. And so it's like this deep plunging neckline and there's like sparkles. And I'm like, how does this, how is this the attire of a host of like a serious hard hitting expose series? I mean, it's not. That's the point. I think she looks like a showgirl or something. I mean, Barbo's Lynette basically knows how, you know. What people tune in for. This is the Fox News aesthetic, right? You know, red, white, and blue, mm. busty blonde. Like it's mm-hmm. it's right. It's right out of the Fox News playbook. Yeah, it is. So actually. Lynette is ahead of her time. She is ahead of. Well, part of that is also, I think, the difference in feminism between her and Jessica, mm-hmm. which comes out really interestingly in this episode. Um, so when she and Jessica are introduced. Jessica calls her Miss Bryant, and she says, like, she's really unhappy about it. She's like, it's Ms. Bryant. And so the Ms. becomes like a point of punctuation throughout the episode. Mm -hmm. And as Jessica's leaving, not particularly liking her, you know, she's like, blah, 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 Ms. Fletcher. And Jessica turns and is like, it's Mrs. Fletcher. I think this is – it's a moment of humor and levity, right? Like they're clearly women from different generations who aren't going to get along. But I think it also tells us something really fascinating about Murder, She Wrote's understanding of feminism. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, like Jessica in many ways has all the hallmarks of a feminist in that she's often a woman in a man's world. She takes care of herself. She thinks people should be treated equally and have equal opportunities. Um, But at heart, she like is identifying as a wife in that moment. Like Mm -hmm. that is her identity is Mrs. Fletcher. Uh, And she's kind of off put by the single woman asserting that her identity is her own. Right. And I mean, you know, I mean, it's if feminism is indeed about choice, like it's interesting that, you know, that Jessica would assert her own choice and her own identity, even if it's not one that necessarily every feminist would agree with. Mm-hmm. But I think that's what makes Murder, She Wrote, so compelling is that, you know, in many ways, people can read it as a feminist text. Like, it's very uplifting for women. Mm-hmm. But it's always in a sort of cultural feminism sense, like never too radical, never really actively excavating the politics at the time. And I think this is one example where it brushes up against those politics and is like, yeah, Jessica's going to back away from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. She's not Maud, right? Yes, exactly. So then what was the other thing that I know you're dying to talk about? Like, the, your eyes are positively lighting up. George Takei is in this episode. Yes, indeed. So what do you make of George Takei's appearance in this episode? Well, that's the problem, right? Because we obviously love him. He's amazing. Um, but he's playing a character that's uh, not great. I mean, ultimately, he helps solve the murder, but he does this horrible accent. It's like a horrible – it's almost like a yellow face version of an Asian character who's like – he's Tanaka, so he's presumably Japanese, which Takei is himself. But it's like – it just feels like such a character caricature that it feels like yellow face even though Takei himself is Asian. That's what I thought. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty awful. But I think we can forgive him for that. Because he's just an actor taking a role. Um, And I think we have to have maybe just a little bit of cultural contextual understanding of where and when the episode was written and made. 
Um, but it is a little, it's, it's pretty awful, I'll say. Right, yes. And it's also very specifically like the way that 1980s TV tends to portray Japanese American characters. Like, I, it reminded me as soon as he started speaking of the way that the Golden Girls tends to portray its Asian American characters who are from actual like Asian countries. It's, you know, and it's, it's very, seems seemingly ubiquitous <laughs> in 1980s. It's really cringy. Yeah. But that being said, um, the character that he plays is really compelling for a couple of reasons. Um, he's right. the janitor, so he sort of moves through the building unobserved and knows everything because of that, uh, and ultimately is able to help Jessica and trap the killer. But he, he also has this moment where he takes Jessica into his janitorial office, I guess. He has like an office. And he shows her his collection of celebrity trash that he's preserved in plexiglass. Which is hilarious for all sorts of reasons. Um, as you say, it's just like some sort of detritus that various celebrities have left behind. Which also seems like a running gag I see a lot in TV, too. Like, it comes up in the Golden Girls, again, to reference the Golden Girls. And I've seen it elsewhere as well. That's true. Um, I think it's part and parcel of a misunderstanding of who fans are and what they are. Um, but I think what makes me so compelled by it in his particular case is because we know that Star Trek has a long storied fandom uh, who's often presumed to be very rabid fans. And so I think there's almost like a sort of a meta conscious sort of calling attention to the fact that he played Hikaru Sulu on Star Trek, this cold TV series. Uh, but actually, in this episode, he's the fan, right? It's doing, like, some interesting fan work, I think. Although, as a fan studies right. scholar, I have to say, like, we definitely frown upon portrayals of fans as, like, crazy loons who go through trash bins. Right. We don't like to see them as fanatical. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> even though what? What were you going to say? I finished that sentence. Oh, even though, of course, that's where the term fan comes from. Anyway, we've debated that as scholars. It's in all the literature. We've moved, We've decided to move past that origin. Anyway, he is crucial to the murder. Yeah, so he, I think it's a cool role for him 20 years out from Star Trek, although the films were like right. at, the, at the time, right? Um, so he was being on the big screen at the time, um, but it's fun to see him sort of be this obsessed fan. And Jessica, it's so cute right. the way he shows his collection to her. And she's just sort of like what the hell is this? <laughs> what am I going to do? Look, it's, it's like a half-eaten banana. This is gross, right? Yeah, she has this very bemused, almost and quasi-disgusted look on her face the entire time that he's handing her all of this trash. Although he does provide her the crucial clue to figuring out the murder. Yes, when, when he spills his thermos. Yep, spills his coffee on himself. And she's like, oh, yes, that's right. Because the murder victim... Uh, was in his office and someone spilled coffee on him in his chair and he was summarily fired. And of course, the chair that his dead body was later found in had no coffee stain. So either the chairs have gotten switched or the body was somehow switched. And that becomes the important clue to Jessica figuring out the guy was actually in someone else's office. Mm -hmm. uh, our killer went into that office to shoot that guy. He was like, oops, I killed the wrong guy. I'll just frame the guy I meant to yes. kill and that'll sort itself out. Yep, which, you know, I, I always have to wonder in these things, like, the framing of other people. It's like, you have to know it's not going to actually pan out. It never pans out, ever, in, ever, in any situation. But it comes up so much in murder mysteries that someone tries to frame someone else. It's like, that's just not going to pan out. How do you know it doesn't pan out? Like, we only know the murderers who don't succeed. Well, that's true. So are you, maybe there are some people who are being framed. That's what I'm saying. There could be a lot of people in jail who are 
actually just framed by the real killer. I mean, we all know, of course, that Jessica has framed them all. So really, she's <laughs> the master of getting away with being framed. Um, and of course, our killer. You know what? I got to tell you, Teach, um, in terms of keeping track of the characters' names and even researching the actors, I let myself not do that much work this week because I found all of the white guys completely interchangeable. Like, they look it the same. They talk the true. same. They serve the same narrative function. Right, so the murderer is Robert Warren, um, is the character's name. Yeah, and he apparently killed he killed Kenneth because he, well, he meant to kill Steve, the producer, but because he's in love with Steve's wife. Jane. Who is the one Jessica came to visit. Right, and I really just wanted to point out one thing quickly, like writing-wise, which I found very effective in this episode. And one of the things that I think Murder Shirt does very well, very consistently, is that in just a few lines of dialogue, we learn about who these like who Je- this person is in relationship to Jessica, What's going on with her life, which is to say that she's having marital difficulties. She's left her practice as a psychologist. Like, we learn all these details just while they're driving to the station. And I always really appreciate how much Mercer was able to convey with just a few lines of dialogue. It is how efficiently it's written that we get all of this Mm. really important detail that will be very germane for the rest of the episode. Yeah, and we learn about Rob's intervention into her marriage um, at the Mm. dinner table, right? And actually, in that first scene where we see him, it's he's weird. He's yes. giving me like weird – I'm like, something about this isn't right. He doesn't – and he keeps making jokes about his relationship with Jane in the past. And I, if I were Steve, the current husband, that would be awkward. If I were Jane, that would be awkward. If I were Jessica just sitting at this table, I would be like, the three of you have some stuff to sort out. This is mm-hmm. weird. But she's Jessica, so she just sort of politely laughs. But it was like, something is off about this guy. And then, you know, what turns off – what turns out to be off is that he's like a raging murderer. So <laughs> – Yes. And just my instincts were correct. Right. I mean, it is one of the murder motivations that I feel like is more convincing. I mean, because it is true that people will murder for, you know, this kind of jealous reason. Like, that makes sense to me as a motivation. I mean, that's what a lot of, you know, my mother watches a lot of true crime TV. And that really is, you know, a surprisingly large number of murder cases are because of that kind of petty jealousy that you just can't get over that someone would choose someone other than you. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also very interesting the way that, you know, when Jessica confronts him, he, of course, does the patented, well, now I'm going to murder you, too. Yes. But it's like, dude, like, what do you think is going to happen? Like, you're going to murder Jessica in the middle of the office? And like, what? Down, like, no, she's a world-renowned novelist. Do you think someone's not going to be able to figure out? Like, well, it could, I mean, you know, it could be one of the other people. Well, I know, but like at some point you have to be like, am I, how am I going to figure this out? Like it was one thing to move the chairs around. It's quite another. He's to... digging himself in deeper and deeper is what you mean. But it's also just when these people are like, well, I'm, now I'm going to have to murder Jessica too. It's like, yeah, then you'll have two murders to, to like right. cover up, which is twice as difficult as, you know, doing one. He's also like seemingly going to like strangle her. Like he like unties his tie and is like going to throttle her with it. I'm like, once again. She's going to put up a fight. Like, she's not going to just sit there. Like, I have all sorts of questions about what goes through these characters. This is a lady who fought off a lead pipe. Yes, exactly. Like, (laughs) she's going to leave, like, DNA all over your body. Like, They didn't have DNA testing. Well, okay, fair enough. But what I'm saying is, like, this is not going to go off as easily as he seems to think it is. Yeah, well, he's acting on the fly now. His big plans have been twice thwarted. So, actually, he's not that great of a murderer. He really isn't. He has already screwed up twice. But I want to talk about that confession scene that you're talking about because 
This episode was directed by Anthony Shaw, was how he was credited at the time. He goes by Anthony Pullen Shaw professionally now. It's Lansbury's son. And it was his first episode directing. Uh, and so, of course, I'm watching to see how he did. And this confession scene is actually really interesting because the first part of it is shot from the point of view of the killer. So we see someone coming into the building late at night and sneaking around corners. And it's the camera is them, you know, so we don't know who they are. Then we cut to seeing Jessica in the chair facing backward, just sitting in the dark waiting for them. And she says, you know, something like, took you long enough, Rob, or something, or... Um, so like she clearly knew it was going to be Rob. But I just thought it was an interesting visual choice to have us in the from the point of view of the killer in that moment. And it's it's late at night. There's thunder outside. You know, it sort of adds to the creep factor. And I quite I quite liked that. Yeah. I thought it was really well done. And yeah, I enjoy I always enjoy those confessional scenes. But what also struck me is that it's actually Jane who sort of leads him to his own confession. Like she kind of offers a bit of compassion and empathy to him. As she's, you know, trying to, she's like, what will you, are you going to murder me too? So it's a really, you know, it's an interesting reflection of her own, you know, profession as a psychologist. Or maybe she's a psychiatrist. Yeah, so obviously Jessica had the police lieutenant and Jane standing outside. Right, of course. So once Rob starts saying things, Jane comes in and and because she was, we learned, she was his psychiatrist in the past. Mm -hmm. And so she sort of talks him down and she also uses the fact that he's in love with her to sort of calm him down. Like, you're not going to hurt me. You love me, you know, and. Just let us arrest you. It'll be fine yeah. for everyone except you. Right. Basically. <laughs> and then she happily learns that her husband hasn't been cheating on her, which is nice. Yeah. So, of course, Jessica has not only solved the murder. She's also, you know, reestablished their the marriage. Happy people. Yes, exactly. Is there anything that Jessica Fletcher can't do? Um, the answer is no. Oh, okay. I was trying to think. Like, there's probably something we haven't seen her do yet. I mean, we haven't she- seen her go swimming yet. Well, that's true. But she can garden. She can swim. She can solve murder. She can fix marriages. She can. She cooks. Yeah, cooks. She gives away hundreds of thousands of dollars. <laughs> Pretty much the ideal wife. You'll never forgive her for giving away that two hundred fifty thousand dollars, will you? No, because I haven't. Was found it two fifty my... or one hundred? I f- I forget how much it was, but I haven't found my Jessica Fletcher to give me <laughs> a large amount of money to subsidize my fl- fledgling writing career. So, a lot of bitterness. Listen. Where are you? JB Fletcher. I just saw on the newsstand this, this month's episode episode. Oh, I'm such a TV scholar. This month's issue of Forbes is America's richest self-made women. Now, self-made is a line of hockey pucks. Like nobody is self-made, but it's a whole list of America's richest women. Like there you go. That's your calling card. You just start picking them and dialing down the list. That's true. I, yes, I have to do that. That's that is. I'm going to go get for as soon as we finish recording. I'm going to go get Forbes and just start calling. That's just what I was going to do. I just look for the ones that had the most butch haircuts and then just start calling them. It's like, do you need a homosexual to like carry your bag? I could be like Gary and Veep and just you know attach oh, myself. Oh, you do figure. have that going for. I feel like that's easier for you than what I've got going for me. Yeah, should be I mean, like, already, are you are you a lesbian? Are you single? I mean, I'm already your Gary, so. You are already my Gary, but I think at one point I asked specifically if you would uh, go to, to, you know, take the hit fall for me, and you said no, oh, and I, I was mean, like, Gary would, so. Yeah, well, I have But he didn't really have a choice. Like, she set him up, so. Right. She, like, she, there this was is no getting weird. Yes, this is getting <laughs> Anyway, what I like about this also is that we get a post-confession scene, which I've been griping about we haven't had enough of in season three. 
Um, so we do see Steve and Jessica and Jane sort of reunited. And we also – we haven't talked about Jessica's relationship with the cop. The cop who is the consultant on the show is also the investigator mm-hmm. in this episode. Um, he's played by Barry Corbin, who's probably best known as Maurice on Northern Exposure. Right. And he uh, he does the thing that they all do of like, you don't know what you're talking about, Jessica, and then sort of realizes, I'm actually in over my head. <laughs> Maybe you should help. And so I love this little bit at the end where um, he's giving he's giving the press conference and he's like, well, I have to be modest and I have to admit. And he looks over at her and she winks at him and he's like, that I solved the murder all by myself. Like she's tacitly mm-hmm. giving her blessing for him to take credit and it's really sweet. And then they all laugh and that's our freeze frame. I thought it was a, a, cu- yeah, so yeah, really like a nice. cute ending, right? And I liked him as, a, as the a sort of law and authority figure because he's kind of um, – Almost southern, like there's a, you know he has a bit of that twang that mm-hmm. you know has he has this sort of like earthy demeanor even if even as he's kind of a showboater because he loves being in front of the camera he loves being the guy that gets to be the cop consultant for this show he loves getting to give interviews yeah you know it's very clear that that's what he's invested in and you know that makes him a little more relatable and more human than some of the other more yeah. rough acerbic authority figure or, you know law enforcement figures that we see otherwise. But, you know, this week and next, Jessica lets someone else take credit for her work. And so not to keep circling back to the feminism thing, but it really was the lens through which I just caught my attention for this episode. And it was the lens through which I ended up watching it. And I just kept thinking about how because Jessica is not a professional investigator Mm -hmm. and because she's always just sort of incidentally around when there are murders – because she commits them, um, that um, and she's a, you know a humble and nice person, and she has her own like life as a writer outside of investigations. That it's not a big deal for her to forfeit credit, but like she's forfeiting credit. She does all the work. She's the one who puts the pieces together. She's the brains behind all of this, and then she just lets men take credit for it. And that's really interesting to me. It is very interesting and gross. Yes, like I think that went without saying. <laughs> Um, the other thing we should talk about, Teach, is who the other guest stars are. So in addition to Barry Corbin and George Takei, we had um, George Santos plays Rinaldi, the teddy bear guy. Oh, yes. And um, he is a guy from the Rockford Files. Like, people probably would have recognized him. Mm-hmm. And then Jane is Judith Chapman, who's like a really big soap star, both before and after Murder, She Wrote. So I feel like there's probably a lot of soap audiences who would watch this and, like, totally recognize her. And she'll be back for another Murder, She Wrote as well. Mm-hmm. I feel like you don't have a lot to say. I mean, I don't know what else to say. We already, I already talked about my favorite guest star, Adrian Barbeau, so. Speaking of feminism, so I would just return from a feminist media studies conference. And um, I have a friend, shout out to Chelsea McCracken at SUNY Oneonta in New upstate New York. And her work uh, investigates the amount of time that women speak in media. So she'll take an entire film and chop it up. She'll plot out all the time women are speaking and, like, remix it. And she has these elaborate timelines where you can see. So, for instance, in um, the Beauty and the Beast animated version, Belle speaks for something like four minutes total. Mm. And uh, in the Emma Watson version, it's like three minutes. (laughs) Yay, feminism. Anyway, I'm – my dad recently commented that in our podcast, uh, I talk too much and that he was going to sit down, not knowing Chelsea's work, but he was going to sit down with a timer and time out how long I speak compared to you. Oh, I mean, I'm sure it's significant ratio. You should also map how many times you interrupt me. 
like that would also be a, a nice thing to see. Yeah, I think I'm. I'm just trying to bring the feminism to the podcast, right? Reclaim space for women's voices. Femi- feministus you know? interruptus. <laughs> Final thought: Fashion. Did we notice any in this episode? Not as much as in the next one. Mm. Oh, I'll be interested to hear that because it didn't stand out to me in the next one. But there is one scene in this one that caught my attention where JB is wearing a beautiful pink cashmere turtleneck. Mm-hmm. It looks like cashmere. might not be. With a brick red blazer over it. And I just thought that was very Yeah, I, I also made note of that. At that, and I was like, I need to make sure Bridget mentions that. The Murder, She Wrote Fashion Corner. Murder, She Wrote Fashion Corner. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's a good place to end. So for this week's episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, I am TJ. I'm Bridget. And we will talk to you next week. The Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nagarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter. 